Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can go ahead and turn to uh, Philippians chapter four is where we're gonna be this morning. Philippians chapter four, we're gonna begin in verse two. Philippians chapter four, we're gonna begin in verse two. So as you turn there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been disoriented? Now, some of us live disoriented, right? We walk into the grocery store and we can't remember what we went to get to. So we walk in and we're looking around and we're disoriented. And then we walk out of the grocery store and we think, where did I park? And we are disoriented again. Some of us live disoriented, but that's, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about a deeper, orienta- uh, deeper disorientation still. When it's not just that you're directionally confused, but you are, you are confused in spirit, in soul, in mind. When, when the relationship falls apart and you don't know how to think, when you're questioning beliefs that you were once sure of, where do you look when you are disoriented? Friends, this is a disorienting moment. And in a culture that disorients you, it is critical, believer, that you keep your eyes on Jesus. In a world that is disorienting all of us, it is critical that you keep your eyes on Jesus. In this final chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's essentially saying to them, don't stop looking at Christ. Don't stop looking at Christ. He's calling them to reorient themselves on the gospel. He's calling them to reorient themselves on the gospel. When you find yourself becoming somebody that you never intended or wanted to become, Paul says, get back to the feet of Jesus. Get back to the feet of Jesus. When you find yourself being graceless to people you love, Paul says the answer is not just to beat yourself up more, but to get back to the feet of Jesus, the fount of grace. So in this final chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he is calling them and he's calling us to reorient ourselves on the gospel. You see, the gospel is good news that brings great joy so that whatever our circumstances, when we meditate on the gospel, we can find joy in our chaos. The gospel is good news that brings great joy to all people. So Paul says, meditate on the gospel. Meditate on the fact that if you are a believer, before the foundations of the world were set, God placed his love on you in Christ. Ephesians chapter one. Paul says, remember that you were like Lazarus, dead in your sin, laid out on the tomb for three days. uh, In the New King James Version, the Bible says that Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb and he made the theological declaration, surely he stinketh. And Jesus says the same thing about you in your sin, right? Surely he stinketh. And some of us, when we meditate on the fact that we were dead, on our, dead in our sin, but the same God that with that same sovereign voice said, let there be light, and there was light. That same sovereign voice said to our dead spirit, let there be life, and we were born again. So meditate on your salvation from eternity past. Meditate on on your regeneration and the work of the Spirit in your life. Meditate on the fact that on the cross, Jesus justified you. He paid the price for all of your sins. He canceled the record of debt that stood against you. In other words, he defanged Satan, your accuser. 
Meditate on the goodness of the gospel, Jesus in your place. Meditate on the sanctification, the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life. Meditate on the fact that one day heaven is yours so you can find joy in chaos. You can find joy in chaos that no matter your circumstances, you can reorient yourself on the gospel. This is both freeing and difficult. Freeing because it brings life and difficult because it forces us to take an honest look at the chaos and the broken relationships and the countless uncertainties that we face. The gospel often turns the light on in some rooms that we would rather keep dark. So Paul begins this final chapter, chapter four of Philippians, with the difficult work of gospel application. He wants us to take what we've claimed to believe and then apply it to our lives and our neighbors, even the scariest parts of our lives and our neighbors. He's calling us to what D.A. Carson calls a gospel orientation. So we're going to look at Philippians chapter, two, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, and we're going to start in verses 8 and 9, and then we're going to work backwards and understand what he says before that. Look at verse 8 of chapter 4. Paul says, finally, brothers, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. And then he goes on. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I wanna highlight two phrases there, and you can probably tell which phrases I'm gonna highlight, right? I've underlined them on the screen for you. Think about these things and practice these things. The Apostle Paul looked at the believers of Philippi and he looks at you and he says, think about these things and practice these things. We tend to be good at one or the other, and Paul says we need to be both. In verse eight, he lays out a list of things he wants the Philippian believers to be thinking about. Now, Paul was using a model of presentation common uh, to philosophers of the day where they would lay out a list of ethics which they proposed were worthy of consideration. In fact, one commentator says it's almost like Paul grabs a philosophy textbook from the college of the day and he just opens it up and he starts kind of comparing a list. Plato gave a list of four cardinal virtues, Aristotle, 12 moral virtues, John Locke, three natural rights, Epicurus worked on a list based on how to pursue happiness in this life, Confucius, there were so many others. But Paul is not merely offering one choice among the many as though he's saying, okay, Socrates had a list and those are good and Muhammad had a list and those are good and Buddha had a list and those are good. So let me just lay my little tray down on the buffet of philosophical choices and you can pick and choose what you want. No, Paul never does that. He's calling us rather to think about these things as streams of the gospel. He just spent three chapters laying out the person and the work of Christ. And now he says, finally, in light of who Jesus is, the image of the invisible God, in light of what Jesus did when he laid down his life on the cross for you, in light of that, think about what is just. In light of that, think about what is true. In light of that, think about what is commendable. Think about the gospel. And then in verse nine, 
he says that what is, he says that he's been thinking about these things and he's lived them out. What you have learned, so the object of Paul's teaching. What you've received, the object of his investment in them. What you've heard, the object of his conversation. What you've seen is the object of his way of life. What, all of that in me. So what is it that he's talking about? What is it that they had learned from him, received from him, heard from him, and seen in him? What is it that, that he wants them to practice? It's the gospel, right? The gospel was the object of his teaching, the object of his investment in them, the object of his conversation, the object of his way of life. That's why all throughout Philippians, Paul is pointing them back to Jesus. So what does Paul say? He says, practice these things. Think and practice. Think and practice. Think about the gospel and practice the gospel. Think about the gospel and practice the gospel. In his little green book titled The Gospel, Ray Ortland says, uh, says that we ought to do this in what he calls gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. He says we as the church need gospel doctrine. We need to believe what is true and reject wrong teaching and put away false gospels. We need gospel doctrine and we need gospel culture. We need a culture among ourselves that is reflective of the gospel we claim to believe. In other words, we need to not just believe John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We need to so treat each other with that kind of love. Think and practice. Think and practice. Think about the gospel, gospel doctrine, and practice the gospel, gospel culture. Paul is calling us to think on and apply the gospel, to think and to practice. So what about you? Are you thinking about the goodness of the gospel these days? Or are you thinking more about the badness of somebody or something? Are you meditating more on the goodness of God or more on the badness of your political opponent? Are you meditating on the gospel? Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's an election year, which means in November, on November 3rd, we're gonna have an election. And generally speaking, from past experience, the emotional climate of our country tends to ramp up in election years, right? It doesn't matter who's running, it's always a bigger election than it was last time, it just, it's the way it goes, right? But we always emotionally become more charged the closer that we get to the election. And peace, becomes a foreign concept, a concept absent in too many of our conversations. What would you do to know that the God of peace was with you come November? Now, I don't mean that he's with your candidate in that way, right? I mean that he is with you. Paul says if we think on the gospel and we practice the gospel, the God of peace will be with us. In the Bible, you cannot separate the concept of peace from the gospel, from the saving work of Jesus. In other words, where the gospel is, there is peace. Where the gospel is not, there is no peace. Paul uses this title for God to make the point elsewhere. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 1 Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. 
Paul calls us to meditate on the gospel, to so think about it that the God of peace is with us. The God of peace will not dwell with someone who is steeped at crucifying their neighbor. There's, there's a, a popular kind of a, a thought process going on uh, these days, and I, I may misrepresent it. If so, I'm sorry, but it's called cancel culture. And the idea behind cancel culture, so uh, as far as I can understand it, is that if I don't like you or I don't agree with you or if what you say offends me, I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to so oppose you that I don't just disprove your point, I cancel you as a person. And if you're in a position of authority, I'm gonna do whatever I can to erode your position of authority so that you just you lose all credibility and all respect as a person. That's cancel culture. Again, I, I could be wrong on some of the nuances. But Catalyst, the question for us is are we going to be a place of peace, a people of peace who walk with the God of peace in the midst of a cancel culture? One pastoral friend asked the question the other day. He said, we have to start thinking for our churches, what are we gonna do to be places of peace in a culture of conflict? Paul is calling us to apply the gospel to two areas of life where if you're anything like me and you are, you are quick to become disoriented. You're quick to forget the gospel. That is with problematic people in conflict and with uncertain situations in anxiety. So there are two ways that Paul's calling us to believe and apply the gospel this morning. And we're, you'll, you'll see them in our text. Number one, believe it in our conflicts. And number two, believe it in our anxieties. Believe it in our conflicts and believe it in our anxieties. Look at what Paul says begin, beginning in verse two. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche. These were two women who he was naming. I entreat them to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I don't want us to miss the shock that recorded in scripture are two women that are, are named Right? And in this instance, they're named in a letter that would have been read in front of the entire congregation at a gathered meeting. They're called out by name for their disagreement in front of the whole church. And we've actually got a couple of people uh, here this morning who are in disagreement. So I'm just gonna go ahead and call out their names and let everyone know, okay? So, uh, no, of course not, right? I'm not nearly that brave, right? Or stupid, depends on how you look at it. Bravery and stupidity are often close cousins. But Paul says, I want these two women to agree in the Lord, and he names them. He names them. And this is not just two cantankerous women who are arguing over where to put the flowers on the front of the church stage. This is, as one commentator, Moises Silver says, Silva, a, a, a substantive a division within the church leadership. These were two women who were involved in the church, and Paul calls them to agree in the Lord. And it's to their credit that Paul considered them mature enough to be able to handle this unusual admonition. The fact that their names are recorded in Scripture is not uh, uh, saying that they, they weren't mature, but rather that they were. You see, how we settle disagreements is a gospel issue. These women's names were written in the book of life. 
They're believers. They've been involved in the church for the past 10 years as it's gotten started and grown. That's how long it was since, the, since we planted um, Philippians and since this letter was written. So they have been involved. And these women who labored side by side are now standing toe to toe. Two women who used to stir one another on to good deeds are now driving each other away. And we don't know the details of the situation. We don't know who said what or the timeline of when it was said or who didn't invite who to the Friday night potluck or who complained about the way she made that dish or did you see the dress that she wore? I can't believe she'd wear that. We don't know who posted the article that said masks are pointless or who posted the article that said if you don't, love, you don't wear a mask, you don't love your neighbor or who said black lives matters or who said all lives matters. We don't know the nature of their disagreement, but we can imagine, especially these days, right? Pick your topic, pick your topic. But whatever it was that was dividing them was now more pressing than the gospel which had once brought them together. And that, Paul says, is sad. Doesn't mean we don't tackle some tough topics, but it means we always commit to seeing each other in Christ before we see each other in our conflict. My fundamental and foundational and primary commitment to you as other believers is to see you in Christ and then talk about whatever it is we need to talk about but to see you in Christ. Gospel doctrine, I believe that you are in Christ. Gospel culture, I will treat you as you are in Christ. Let's commit to not letting the things that divide us become bigger or more defining than the gospel which unites us. We need, some of us who, who find ourselves politically ramped up, we need to look towards November 3rd, that's election day, and we need to look at some people on the other side of the political aisle who are in Christ and say, here's the deal. On November 4th, you and I are still gonna be brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm committed to treating you as such between now and then. I'm committed. I, I got a group of people from Catalyst years ago uh, together for dinner one night and we talked about politics. And it was a very small group of people. I only invited a couple of people and I intentionally invited people who I knew disagreed and who were friends. And I said, here's the deal, you all are, are believers and I believe that you are believers and you all say that you're each believers and you believe that. So you see each other as you are in Christ. Now we're gonna talk about some tough stuff and we're gonna disagree. But at the end of this conversation, you are all committed to seeing each other as we are in Christ, not just as we are in this conflict. When I do premarital counseling, I'll sit the couples down and I'll say, uh, hey, um, I want you to go ahead and get out your calendar and plan your 50th wedding anniversary. And I'll make them look up the date. I don't know if iPhone calendars even go that far, right? But I'll make them look up the date. And I'll make them put up a, a reminder that say, okay, 50th wedding anniversary is on that day. And here's the point. They're gonna, they're gonna go through some tough stuff in their marriage, but I want them to navigate the conflicts in light of that anniversary, right? Friends, you and I are gonna be worshiping alongside each other in heaven for all eternity, Let's see each other in that light. Let's see each other in that light. Let's navigate the tough stuff in that light. Paul says, agree in the Lord. Often we refuse to agree in the Lord because at the end of the day, we want to be the Lord. We wanna be considered the right, true, just standard by which all other people are measured. And let me go ahead and pop the bubble, you ain't it. <laughs> 
you ain't it. Neither am I, right? God is just. God is true. God is commendable. So friends, let's commit to that. Paul doesn't just tell these two women to get along, though. He holds the entire congregation responsible for it. You see, how we settle disagreements is a gospel issue, and how we help others settle disagreements is a gospel issue. We have a corporate responsibility to bear the gospel to each other. Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul said to the congregation, help these women Friends, you have a gospel responsibility to help the people around you settle their disagreements. That doesn't mean that you always have to say something, but it means that sometimes you need to say something. We need to create a place of peace. In fact, the word Paul uses help when he says help these women literally means seize. Seize these women. The only hope Paul sees for these two women to be reconciled is for the aggressive engagement of the believing community. One of the major ways that God is at work for your sanctification is through the people around you, which means that one of the ways that God is at work in the sanctification of the people around you is through you. You are to be an agent of gospel doctrine and gospel culture to the people around you. One commentator puts it this way, the striking emphasis of this letter on corporate responsibility reaches a, a dramatic, dramatic high point in the exhortation of verse three, help these women. The discord between Yudia and Syntyche cannot be viewed by the congregation as a personal matter. These courageous women whose names too were written in the book of life needed the assistance of the whole church to resolve their differences. Brothers and sisters, we must not avoid intervening in the dispute simply because they are afraid of meddling. Just as the good Samaritan got his hands dirty in the mess by caring for the beaten man on the road to Jericho, so we too must get our hands dirty in each other's messes at times as we care for one another on the road to heaven. Only the gospel gives you the power to deal gracefully with your own conflicts and courageously and compassionately with the conflicts of your brothers and sisters. Only when you realize that Jesus, through his death on the cross, has made peace, can you step into the midst of conflict, not to condemn, but to reconcile. Paul is calling us to the difficult work of gospel application. Believe it in your conflicts, and then secondly, believe it in your anxieties. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is not writing from a Starbucks with a warm latte in hand. He wrote from a prison cell to a congregation which he loved, and he was deeply concerned for them. He held them in his heart, and yet he wasn't sure which way things were going to go for them. Would they overcome the seeds of division that had been sown, or would 2020 be the year that ruined it all? Paul didn't think that, but we're kind of wondering, right? And yet he wasn't sure. He's just not sure. How's it going to go? Would they be united about the gospel again? Would they, would they have a shared joy in the Lord? Would they agree in the Lord? But in the midst of this uncertainty, he applies the gospel and he tells them to rejoice. I feel like in our divided culture, that phrase is one which the Spirit would whisper to us again and again, rejoice in the Lord always, always. I, I won't agree with you in the Lord 
until I'm first rejoicing in the Lord. So he tells them to let their reasonableness be known to everyone. That word reasonableness is a relational word. It means gentleness. It's not just that you're even keel, but you're gentle towards other people. You're forbearing some spirit, some, some uh, not spirits, excuse me, uh, wrong word. Uh, some translations say, some spirits may say it, but that's another sermon. Um, so Paul says, man, let, let your forbearance be known to everyone. I just started reading a book the other day titled Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And uh, he makes the point in the very first chapter, he says there's only one time in all of scripture where Jesus tells us, about, tells us about his own heart. And do you know what the two words he uses to describe his heart are? Gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. Believer, does that describe you? Gentle and lowly. What if you made it your aim that for the rest of 2020, that was gonna be your heartbeat, gentle and lowly. Let your reasonableness, your forbearance be known to all. This doesn't mean weak, right? This is not a weak word, it's a tough word. It's the exact opposite of self-seeking. It's a resolved attitude to consider others more significant than ourselves. So Paul is calling us to rejoice in the Lord, to let our reasonableness to others be known. Why? Because we know that the Lord is at hand. So we don't become anxious, but we pray, right? That's what he says, verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Meditating on the gospel removes our anxieties and invites us, compels us to pray. This, this isn't offering a cheap uh, substitute to deep anxiety, right? This is rather a God-given call to pray. When you think about the fact that God so loved you that he sent his only son to die for you, we find a God we can trust even when we don't know what's going on. And when we realize that God was in absolutely in control, even in the darkest moment of the Bible, when Christ was crucified, we can trust that he's in control even in the darkest moment of our lives, Paul says in Acts 13 that those who lived in Jerusalem crucified and condemned Jesus because they did not recognize him. And not recognizing who he was, they fulfilled the prophecies about him. Peter says in Acts 4 that they, even though they didn't mean to, it did exactly what God's hand and plan had destined to take place. There was not one moment in which God was not in control. So, Paul says, when that anxiety creeps up in you, and you wonder how it's all gonna work out and you realize that you're not in control, trade anxiety for prayer. Luther said, pray and let God do the worrying. I think he was onto something there. Pray and let God do the worrying. So we're applying the gospel to our uncertainties. We're applying the gospel to our uncertainties and we're responding by prayer. Prayer doesn't inform God as though you were some sort of news correspondent on the ground. Prayer is a confession from you to God of reality. God, this is how it is. And I don't know, but you do know. And I can't, but you can. Prayer is believing God in the midst of whatever uncertainty you find yourself in. It is the means by which God sends his troops to battle. It's the wartime walkie-talkie by which we call in coordinates for air support. And finally, Paul says in verse seven, and the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God guards, that's a military term, and it only applies when the king is ruling. We might think about it this way. The peace of God guards what the God of peace governs. The peace of God guards what the God of peace governs. If we in rebellion withhold prayer, we cannot expect the peace of God to guard our hearts or our minds. If we refuse to call in the coordinates, we cannot complain when the support never comes in. But when we do call them in, we will be guarded. It may not always work out the way we think it's going to, but we can rest assured that we will be guarded by the peace of God and the God of peace, and no weapon formed against us shall prosper. So are you a praying Christian? In the midst of your anxieties, in the midst of your uncertainties, in the midst of your conflicts, are you a praying Christian? Are you applying the gospel to yourself? Or are you prayerless? Of all things this season might do for us, it could catapult us back into the habit of prayer. You see, on, in the gospel, God took what appeared to be an unspeakable tragedy and was all the while working for unspeakable good. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, though an absolute and outright reversal of justice, a tragedy in every sense of the word, he who was without guilt being condemned among the guilty was exactly what the hand and plan of God had predestined to take place. So let us meditate on the good news of the gospel and all of our anxieties take on a new light. All of our uncertainties uh, navigated in light of this governing truth. We can be gracious to difficult people because God has been gracious and merciful to us in the gospel. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. Think about these things and practice these things. Yes. Yes, for the rest of 2020, this is where I wanna go. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. And not just 2020, but for our 50th wedding anniversary as a church, right? When we celebrate 50 years, may it be said of us that we were about gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Friends, let's return again and again to the marvelous and amazing grace of God that is shown to us only and always in Christ. Let me pray for us.